In this episode, we highlight a few open source projects and talk about how they interact with contributors, where Bas forgets what his C name is, and Benedict has to look it up for him. This is Contravariance, a podcast about Swift, Apple, and other programming subjects. Hey, good morning, Buzz. Morning, Benedict. How are you doing? I don't know. I feel like today is not yet my day. <laughs> it was one of those days, those days where I feel like my mental energy, mental energy is low, and my immune system is about to give up. But about to, so not yet. Oh, that doesn't sound good. I hope you you don't get sick. Um, I hope so too. But I mean, it happens, right? And like, if that's the case, then. Yeah, and then you just have to do the best to cure. Then um, I'll just hope that it will be recovered in time for my next appointment. Well, next speaking thing next week. So, because hmm. that will be unfortunate. Yeah. And what about you? Um, I did tell you that I stopped drinking coffee one time a couple of years <laughs> ago, right? He says while holding a coffee cup. I did, with yeah, coffee. Yeah, so I uh, before I did so, I drank around 9 to 10 cups a day. And mm-hmm. then I stopped doing it for half a year. And it wasn't my thing. I really tried hard, but whenever I would smell coffee, I would melt down. And so after half a year of not drinking coffee, I just gave up. And um, I came back. Or maybe it was a year of not drinking coffee. I, I forgot the details. Um, nevertheless, ever since, I've been switching through coffee. So sometimes... I drink filter coffee, a big bucket of, and sometimes I drink espresso, two, three. So I'm in between switching, so it's always exciting. I'm currently in my espresso phase. Nice. I mean, right. I can I can totally relate to like the smell of coffee feeling like, oh, I want a cup of coffee. Or at least I love the smell of coffee. I love right. coffee itself, right? Uh, but yeah. yeah. And I, I remember that we were at a uh, restaurant for lunch like two weeks back or so and it's this this vietnamese restaurant ah, yes and they have this uh coffee with uh like maybe you can explain it better but it's it's so good so it's vietnamese coffee and um let's not talk too much about this but the vietnamese <laughs> have their own way why not <laughs> of, of making coffee um what they do is um they have a very thick creamy milk that they add to it that's also very sweet and that was basically when the french came into indochina they wanted to continue drinking milk um, but it was so warm and there were no refrigerators back then so added they added a lot ton of sugar to the milk to make it last longer and then the vietnamese combined this milk and then they also with their own way of uh, making coffee so first of all um, vietnamese coffee beans are very heavy and robusta so they are stronger they taste a bit different and then when they roast them they add additional stuff to the roasting process like chicory for example and and other things and so that gives the bean a very distinct taste and so you have this thick creamy milk you have uh, different beans that are roasted in a different way Um, and then you also have a different coffee making process you've seen that where you get this thing that you put on your cup the coffee is pressed into it and then the hot water is added on top and then will slowly trickle through the coffee and by that way become um, coffee basically and it it tastes really good Uh, not everybody likes it I have to say I I gave it to a lot of people over time and some people didn't like it a lot of people enjoy it because the taste is so different yeah, the only the only thing that I would say is like it's a bit on the sweet side. Oh yeah, yeah. You can also drink it without the creamy milk, which is I, what I always do. It still tastes different then. I don't know. Like I think I like the milk. I just think it's a little sweet. But 
Yeah, we can we can maybe try and um, and have one here because I have all the equipment at home to prepare this coffee. Sounds good. Yeah, talking about coffee, um, Swift Over Coffee, another great Swift podcast, is going into a second round. Oh yes, second or third? I think it's the second. Okay, I think so. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, I, I know that there is a is a new season starting. Uh, yeah. So that's a podcast by Sean Allen and Paul Hudson. And uh, it's, I think it's really cool what they do, right? Like we've done that a while mm-hmm. and we should probably do that. Try it, uh, try it again. Um, but they post a question before they record the episode and then like gather, uh, you know, people's opinions or people's thoughts on, on a topic and then able to are able to dis- discuss that uh, and basically have those, those extra uh, inputs from other people to discuss the topic, which is which is really cool. Mm. Yeah, it's I like the podcast. Um, it's succinct, so every epi- no, no episode is usually longer than 30 minutes and it's easy to, to listen to and I really enjoy listening to it. It's one of my favorite podcasts in Swiftland. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice and I'm happy that it's back. I think many people were, were asking for it as well, mm. right? Yeah. I think they rather abruptly stopped, mm-hmm. but that's fine. Um, yeah, looking yeah. forward to to what the next season for them brings. Yeah. Talking about podcasts, uh, we have a kind of different episode today um, because we will be talking mostly about great open source projects that we ran to, into and explain a bit why we think it's great and why we like them and so on and why it might be useful for you, the listener. Yeah, so at, at least for me, like I have quite a bit of experience with open source and we, we've talked about, you know, projects in the past, right? Like we have this, uh, uh, we, we've discussed like one project uh, every episode or at least many episodes and basically point out like what we've seen that week and why we think it's, it's cool. Uh, and in this episode, we want to go a bit deeper into, okay, what, like what does it really bring to open source and, and how does open source work and, and what is so so cool about open source and uh, specifically in this case when we look at, at things in Swift. Um, but there will be an exception to that. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So uh, Benedict, your first pick is X11 or is it 10.11 no, it's on X- iOS? X11 on iOS. <laughs> so What is that? So remember last episode, we talked about Hackintosh, right? Mm-hmm. When you have a Hackintosh, you basically, you love macOS so much, you're so in love with the software, but you find the hardware too limiting that you go out of your way to somehow replace the hardware because to, in order to still run the software. What is the inverse Hackintosh? I mean... I don't know, but I think something on iPad is what you're hinting at. Right. So on iPad, basically, what you can do is um, you can hack the iPad, you can unlock it, you can root it, and then you can basically install any software you want. Um, and the reason why you want to do that is because you can install any software you want. So the it, you could also buy an Android tablet, but they suck. You could also buy a Windows tablet, but they suck. So here the situation is reversed. You love the hardware so much, but you find the software too limiting for what you want to do. And that's basically what um, rooting a iPad is. And that's the, currently um, that is possible with a 
most Apple iPads and iPhones, I think, due to a bootroom bug that they had. I, I'm not in the details here. I haven't done it in a very long time. Uh, nevertheless, I stumbled upon this, and I'm inclined to try it out. Um, I'm still pondering, but I want to briefly talk about it, because it is cool that somebody poured the time into this. So what it is, X11 is um, a Linux technology, a Unix technology, that is on Unix used to draw windows, to display application windows and so on. It's basically on macOS, you have the Windows server that displays your stuff. And on Linux, that's X11. And X11 is just a protocol. So basically, you can just implement some code that conforms to X11. So you can, write, in theory, write your own X11 server. Um, and then all the Linux apps, they run on your display. So that means you could also, for example, write something like that for watchOS and then run Emacs on watchOS because the, as long as you conform to the protocol, all the Linux apps that use this protocol, which is most, there is another technology called Wayland. I don't want to go into that. But most Linux apps will basically, without any modification, then display their stuff on your device. I'm not so sure if that's a great idea for watchOS, though. <laughs> I'm inclined to agree. Um, here... Somebody recently saw an iPad. It, 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 somebody had worked on this before because the iPad is Unix, right? Once you root it, you have a, you have a very simple Unix. And somebody had worked on this before a couple of years ago, released his code, but it only worked with iOS 7, I think, and wasn't compatible. And now this guy called Max Leiter released something where you can, um, if you have a rooted iPad, run Linux apps on iPad. Now, this might not necessarily sound useful because why want you to want to do that, right? The reason why you want to do this is suddenly apps like VS Code, um, apps like Terminal, um, various text editors, a file manager, um, they all are available on iPad and it's not like you are installed in Linux. So your iPad is still available. You still have all the Apple apps and so on, but there's an additional app you can start. And in there, you suddenly have a terminal, you have a proper text editor, um, you can run stuff, you can um, you can um, use apt-get, for example. Um, no, not apt-get, you can use something called Sudia, which is a package manager like, uh, like Homebrew to install stuff and so on. Um, you can install um, different like things like Node.js or other things and, and, and run apps in a browser and so on. And this is really cool if you want to do development, especially if you want to do development on the go. You're on a train, you're somewhere where you don't have internet connection because oftentimes people say, well, I can just install a terminal app on my iPad, like this open term, for example. And then, well, I think there is an asterisk there because that was created by uh, Luis, right? Mm -hmm. And he's been working at Apple on Xcode for more than a year now. And I think that app is definitely not in the App Store. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if it's still open source available or anything like that. But there are other terminal apps for iPad. There's, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, there's also from Panic, there's one, I forgot the name. Um, and you can use them, and I tried that, but the problem is what, you can only do it when you have a good internet connection. And it's only text mode. I mean, I'm a big fan of Vim, so I, I can do with just Vim to do my editing, but not everybody wants it. People maybe want to write a real UI. And now this is not, not optimal for touching with your hand, but in modern time, we can connect your mouse to our iPad. So so this come, maybe comes at a, at a good point in time if you want to do more with your iPad. If you, if you want to go on vacation, you want to travel, and you just bring your iPad, but you also want to work on some JavaScript, for example, some Python, Ruby, or whatever, um, this would give you the flexibility. Now, granted, you still have to root your iPad, and I haven't done that with mine yet. Um, nevertheless, I wanted to mention it because I feel it's, it's a cool thing to do if you want to be more flexible and do more development in the iPad because this opens a lot more doors than before. 
Have you spoken to any other people that are interested in this project or are interested in trying this out? And like, what what do they? What are their use cases? I guess sure, like like this mentions text editors and and all of that, but it's like, is there no text editor, for example, with like the Vim keybinding support, for example? There is um, a official Vim, well, I think it's official, where somebody is, uh, you can install it on, from the App Store, and it, it's basically Vim, it runs on the iPad, that works. Um, but that's only the editing bar, right? If you, especially if you want, want to work on a modern website project, for example, you use, need to run, and now this is not where, I'm str- where I have strong knowledge, but I think you have Webpack, and then you need to run NPM in the terminal, and you need to run this in the terminal, and that in the terminal, and you can't do that. There's no terminal on iPad. There's no way to to run processes, to to start, fire up a local development server and connect to it and try out stuff. Um, you might need to minimize your CSS to to run image scripts. None of this works. And um, even if there were an app that allowed some of it, it would be very inflexible um, because you don't get you can't just edit the the shell scripts and then run it again and so and so. There's a, there are a lot of limitations if you want to do actual work that encompasses everything we do in Unix. Right. Um, and I'm assuming this is open source. Yeah. So, like, is it on GitHub or is it like what? What are they, what? How does it work in open source? Are they looking for contributors? So, in this case, I think they would be very happy to have contributors. Um, one thing he mentioned is he's not a Apple developer, um, and so the way it currently works is a bit cumbersome. You have to install two apps. Um, and he would love to, the technology he wrote would easily be possible to have in one app, but for that he would need to write it in Swift. He doesn't know Swift or Objective-C. So this, for example, is ripe for somebody who's interested in that to to contribute a, a, a separate iPad app, uh, open source, that bases on what he did. And, and, and it's just one app that displays everything. Then you would also have uh, the ability to, to add additional functionality just for iPad that um, is currently impossible the way it works. Um, and uh, he's actively he was actually actively looking for that the last I, I saw and there's also a button here it says on the website want to contribute um, where you can uh, can help to contribute to this uh, project and there's also um, as I said there's something built in that is like homebrew um, but not everything is working in that yet so another way if you want to contribute is let's say you want to run go and so uh, go is currently not part of this package manager called Cydia, and so that you could add Go support. Um, there's also something called Swift Lite, um, which is a version of Swift that is optimized for Raspberry Pi. Um, and it might be possible to be able to add support for Swift Lite or even for Swift to this. So then you could run full-blown Swift server-side projects on your iPad and edit it and um, and, and run, the, run the scripts and so on. Um, yeah, you could add support for that. So I think he would be, be very happy for people that add packages to this um, and maybe at a native app that allows you uh, to have a fully integrated iPad app with yeah. copy and paste and everything. It sounds really interesting. It sounds like there are a lot of opportunities uh, also when it comes to, to like contributing to this project, which I think makes it makes it really cool. Yeah, especially because this guy is not an, as far as I understand, not a iOS developer. Um, so this is where w- our community could really help out. And then one last question, why did they create this for iOS? So um, it was the reason I explained. He wanted to be able to do programming work on his iPad, and he felt the iPad was way too limited. Ah, uh, okay, so yeah, yeah. They, they have an iPad. Yeah. Right, yeah. Not, not an iOS developer. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So the next one is one that you pulled out, Buzz. Um, explain, what is it? 
Yeah, so a um, little bit of backstory. John Sandell recently open sourced uh, three uh, new projects or three new frameworks, uh, Publish, Ink, and Plot. And all of these three work together to allow you to build websites in Swift, right? Um, and what I think is really cool is that the whole community, or, or at least part of the, the community, has really uh, embraced this and like has built websites with it and has uh, contributed to the frameworks um, by opening pull requests and, and changing things and fixing things. Um, but this one stood out to me because there is uh, someone who created a CNAME plugin um, that basically extends all of the work that John has done to make it even easier um, to publish your website in the end, right? Do you want to briefly explain what CNAME is? I think you can better do that. Um, okay, so... By default, CNAME is a system that maps domain aliases. So that let's say you have www.bus.nl and you have and you have bus.nl, which is for this for the internet two different domains. Mm -hmm. And a CNAME is a system where you basically say these are all aliases www or www3.bus.nl and so on. They map to the same domain. Usually, you define this in your web server. Let's say you are running Nginx and in or Nginx. I'm not, so bad with pronunciation. <laughs> um, so you're running Nginx, and this is where you define it, or in Apache. Um, but this plugin specifically um, allows to do this for GitHub pages. And for GitHub pages, you can't edit the configuration of GitHub's web server. They don't allow you to do that, which makes sense. So in order to, to allow you to have different domains and de define your domain even, um, you can add a so-called CNAME file to your repository. And this CNAME file contains your domain information. You still need to register a domain, right? You can't just, I can't just go there and at google.com in there and help, hope that this works. It will not. Um, but once you've registered your domain and you pointed it at GitHub server, then this thing allows you to define um, the the name that you, or the names that you want to use. And it would, it's a ba basically all automatic. It will take your configuration, it will write it, and you don't have to care about it, which is nice. Like once you use this plugin, you don't have to think about this anymore. It will just do it properly. Yeah, it's actually something that I should look into at least, uh, you know, not necessarily with, with these tools, but like I still have my website running on GitHub, uh, like github.io mm. rather than on my own server, which I do have. Um, but like I am not like very much not into like web servers and, and all of that. So like even the documentation that tries to explain how to do that, like is daunting to me. Mm. It is a complex stack. Uh, it grew over years, right? And then it's piling stuff on top of each other and and that doesn't make it easier to understand. Yeah, but I think it's really cool to, to see such a project and to see such a response to uh, the projects that, that uh, John has been working on. Um, and it's not necessarily like a big project, right? Like this is more of a, hey, this is a tool you can use to mm -hmm. solve a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's, a very important part of open source as well right it's not all big projects with tens of contributors like that's the very like that's a small minority it's also much more difficult to pull something like that off yeah if you if you if you decide you want to write a, i don't know the next best text editor it takes a lot of time to do that and in between your pro project will probably die 
um, simply because it's so much work. And then if you have too much code, you might be afraid of open sourcing it because people will look at it and um, maybe um, be critical. And if you if you start with something smaller like this uh, that integrates into existing solutions to, to help resolve one particular problem, it's much easier to do and you still help a lot of people out with it. Yeah. So that was that was really nice, I think. Yeah. Um, moving on, uh, we have a few more projects to go through. And we're fine. Well, not finally, but this is really Swift, right? Like this is a bigger Swift project. What is it about? So um, Swift UI, big new technology. Apple, Apple gave it to us this summer and it's great. And um, we can use it for a lot of things. And not everybody might think it's great, but it's still really, really cool. However, the types you have in SwiftUI, um, they sometimes lack the one or other, let's say, um, function. Um, and then you need to write it yourself. Um, there are many examples of things, of code that you find uh, online, of like small snippets on Stack Overflow uh, that do things that um, you want um, that are not in SwiftUI, and then you just copy-paste it into your project. Like an example is using a switch statement, for example, which SwiftUI doesn't support uh, by default. And so there are ways to do that, of course, and then you need to implement it. And then there is... Um, uh, functions for for geometry, for example, there are a lot of controls missing. Um, there's no UI text view, for example. There's no um, you can't use attributed strings, for example. All these things are somehow missing. So there's a lot of things that are missing that you would be great to have. And um, Swift UIX is a Swift package manager project that you can basically just link into your application and it extends the Swift UI standard library with a lot of these useful nice niceties that you then don't have to write yourself and um, keep in sync yourself. So basically if there's an issue in there, if it's not proper, the, the library will be updated, you will, the bugs will automatically be fixed because people are working on it. Um, what I like about this is that it this solves a particular problem. It's that um, SwiftUI currently still lacks a lot of uh, useful things that um, that we want. And instead of everybody developing it on its own, it's standardized into one central point where you basically just link to it and, and use it. And a lot of people are using it. It has a good amount of stars. Um, it it re uh, gets reasonable updates. Um, and it helps you simplify your life when you're using SwiftUI. It really sounds like something that, at least for now, is is a viable option. Uh, I think in the past, also for Swift, and well, not not in the past, probably there's still these kind of frameworks um, that add a lot of, lot of extensions to, to Swift, right? Yeah. And while that's great, that's also a slippery slope because like it's it's a lot that you're importing. Um, and but but what I see here is that it's really like it's a bigger project with a few people working on it. Um, that for now seems to be quite a, a hub that is that is quite stable. Um, you've been working a lot on SwiftUI or mm. with SwiftUI. Have you been using this library? And if so, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? And if not, like why not? So uh, in my personal project, I haven't started using this yet. Um, I looked into it for inspirations when I had a particular problem. I want to start using it. Um, it's just that I'm currently not in a phase where I'm writing SwiftUI. So the the um, the part of my app that I'm currently working on is not SwiftUI related. So um, and ever since I found this 
library, I haven't been working on SwiftUI stuff again. Um, and then the other parts where I'm using SwiftUI, um, there I recently found situations where this would have made sense. Uh, as an example, um, yesterday I ran into the problem that um, there in SwiftUI there's a um, there's a technology called environment objects, where basically um, this is a way of doing sort of dependency injection where you define data, a object, a type that um, is available in all the in the whole child hierarchy. Mm -hmm. But it's not available during initialization. It's only available later uh, in the when you when you're constructing your view in the body. And I needed a way to figure out if an environment object is there. So basically, because it's um, the it's not an optional, though it's not an optional, it can still not be there. Um, and when when you try to access it while it's not there, the app crashes. And I, I knew why it wasn't there, and I knew that it would be there. Um, but I needed to figure out is it there or not. And um, looking through SwiftUIX, there's actually a, a extension on environment object that. Uh, is called is present that you can use to solve this problem. Now, I found I found a different solution that is less good, and so um, I will probably take this and and use it, um, but not link in the whole Swift UIX for now. Um, but even then, it's already useful because I had a problem, and basically for all the different things you can run into when you're using Swift UI, there may be a solution here. And even if you don't want to add the dependency to your project, you can still use a code snippet from here, and then maybe later on link in the whole dependency, which but is. I think that's a great uh, way to to look at it, right? Is use it as a uh, as an inspiration, as a as a resource to understand uh, like how they approach something, um, and especially because this has multiple, right? Like this is a bigger extension. Uh, like look into like what is their their way of thinking, and does that fit uh, how I want to extend SwiftUI? Yeah. And as you say, yeah, there's a lot to learn. Um, SwiftUI is a new technology and just the way to see how they solve certain problems because you have to think differently when you use SwiftUI from time to time. Uh, to see how they do that, it's, it's a great inspiration. And I can even imagine that like, if we look at WWDC this year and seeing what Apple does next with SwiftUI, I can imagine that maybe a bunch of the, the, the challenges that have been solved here will be solved in the standard library. Um, and then you can basically peek at hey this is what it mm. could work like in yeah. the in the background yeah. yeah and also if you want to contribute 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 right um there's a lot of opportunity um if you build something yourself for swift ui like an extension uh, where you feel this is useful to you it might be useful to others and you, you can basically just create a pull request and add this one function this one maybe it's just a two-liner the um addition to uh, the extension to environment object that I just talked about is just one line of code. Uh, but it's it's still, it's very useful. And so if you cr created stuff like that, this is an easy way to um, to help the community to do, create a pull request, to do some open source, take the extensions you already wrote and add them to as a pull request. It's, I think it's useful for everybody. Yeah, I think this, these, these are interesting projects. Yeah, and even if you don't have SwiftUI, uh, stuff to contribute, something this SwiftUIX kind of lacks is good documentation. Um, there is a wiki, but a lot of stuff is not mentioned in the wiki, and it would be, when you go into the source code, you see they have much more stuff than the wiki shows. So somebody who just goes through and documents everything that is there without having to read the source code would already be very, very useful to a lot of people, I think, because when you just go into the, into the repository, you don't even see all the things it has. 
you have to start reading the code, and this is not docu good documentation. Reading code is nice, but documentation should be easier. Yeah, I think that that's definitely an opportunity to to improve on. Yeah. So next up, we have something that you found, Bas. Yeah. So this is another like similar to to my previous pick. It's a really small uh, repository. It's a really small tool tool. Um, but it's something that I really like because it's something that I wanted to build or basically thought about building for quite a while. Um, and it's a, a quick action for Xcode. So it's like an Xcode, uh, I think it's still a plugin um, that lets you jump to source code in GitHub. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there is even a pull request open to add support for Bitbucket. Um, but what that allows you to do is like, hey, you're, you're using your IDE, right? You're in uh, in Xcode and you want to understand a certain line of code or a certain piece of code. And oftentimes, at least what I want to do is check the Git history or understand what the context is of a pull request where this was merged in. And Xcode has Git support, right? So you can at least like, do a get blame or get authors as, as it calls it. Um, but that's like, then you get stuck or I get stuck. And I basically manually go to GitHub and figure out, okay, where, uh, where's this line of code and automating all of that in a simple plugin is like, it's such, so simple, right? If you mm -hmm. think about it, but it's, it's such a productivity boost. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it's really cool that, uh, this is also something that people are, are open sourcing and like sharing with, with everyone. Hmm. It, it's great. It, it looks really great. Did you look at the implementation? Uh, I did not, but I know that uh, it basically runs on an Apple script hmm. um, and, and automates it that way. So I actually, that, that would make me assume that it's like a service and not like yeah. a, an Xcode plugin. Yeah, it's a service, um, but it still only works with Xcode because the Apple script basically starts by saying, tell application Xcode to do the following things. So if you try to run it with any other app, it will not work because it will only talk to Xcode. Uh, nevertheless, it's still very useful, um, be it an Apple script or not. Um, it, the interesting part is that if you want to extend it, if you want to do another thing, you have to do it with Apple script. Which is, which is fun, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure if you ever did Apple script. I, I have. I, <laughs> I've done it for, for small things with the, with the script editor. Okay. Um, as long as it's small, I think it's it's doable. Yeah, like it's it's yeah. a weird, quirky old thing for sure, but it works. I, I like the um, the flexibility that Apple Script gives you in terms of what you can do on your Mac and and how you can basically just tell it what any of the Mac apps if they support scripting um, and lots lots of Mac apps do. You can just tell it anything. Open a document. Do this. Do this. Do this. It's fantastic. Um, for me, the tricky part is always trying to figure out how to tell it that. Um, how to what is the right syntax what are the right commands to to have it do what I want it to do and that's always um, a bit tricky for me yeah for sure I mean I, I had a similar feeling when I started with SwiftUI right like trying to understand how like the thought process behind this framework mm -hmm. and I still have it where it's like sometimes it's like do I pass like an instance of color here or do I pass like mm -hmm. dot yellow mm -hmm. and like I think similarly, you have to like get into Apple Script and, mm. and understand its syntax and, and its quirks. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, but I think this is again right, like the the whole thing is open source, so you can also 
and and that's how they how this works but you can look into what has already been written mm-hmm. so you already have this this starting point and especially when you want to extend uh this plugin specifically uh you already have most of the the context that you need yeah did you did you try it out already on your system does it work with um on-premise github i i haven't tried it out uh so that is definitely a good question but as you can like change it also to work with bitbucket mm, okay uh, i would assume that you can yeah yeah you can, you can change that change some sort of url somewhere to the right one yeah very nice this is a really cool uh productivity booster i think yeah i'm, I'm super excited to to try that one out mm-hmm. another uh project that i've seen and and that is at this point maybe obviously but uh is, is really cool to me is a uh, accessibility framework that was built to run on a simulator or on a device in a development mode and it's built by by an australian company that uh, really cares about accessibility as well and wanted to make it easier to uh, to test and verify things uh, in accessibility because that's not easy right Uh, many of the things that accessibility offers are things you can't see but only hear and you have the accessibility inspector which is is a great start Uh, and it seems like this tries to fill in the gaps and run it directly on a device which also makes it easier to test when you're not connected to the accessibility inspector Um, so what they're saying is hey it's testing this is a very time-consuming process And making that easier means uh, we can find time to create amazing products, but also, I guess, to really improve accessibility rather than trying to find out what is wrong in the first place. Um, And what they're saying as well, and I can really relate to this, and I think that's something you really need almost to, to really dive deep into accessibility and to take it seriously is like, hey, this is a team task. Like it's not just for testers. And it obviously depends on how you work, right? Because it's not like only a tester can open the accessibility inspector or can uh, test for accessibility. But I think it does make a good point that that is easily what is happening, right? And this blurs or blurs the lines or, or closes that gap and makes it easier for everyone to to test for accessibility. It's a really cool project. What I find interesting is um, not everybody knows everything about accessibility, right? And um, so this thing takes a lot of burden away from you as a developer because it encodes all the best practices. So you don't really have to read two books to understand what you're doing wrong. Um, out of all the things it does, uh, I guess my favorite is it checks the color contrast, which is you have a background, you have a foreground, and you need to make sure that the difference between the in contrast between the background and the foreground color is large enough that it's accessible. Now, that's easy when you have black and white. But once you have two different colors that are not black and white, how do you make that sure that you have enough context, you can just look at it, but you might not have the accessibility problem, right? You you don't you don't need it. For you, it's, it's visible. It doesn't mean it's visible for other people. And there's a formula that you can use to calculate the right contrast. But who does that? Who goes through all its labels and backgrounds, takes the two colors, enters them into a formula, calculates a value, and makes sure it's it's proper? That's a lot of work. And the thing just does it. It, it calculates the, the, the formula for it. And it tells you, no, there's not enough contrast here. It's, it's really nice. I love it. Yeah, it's really neat. That being said, though, the accessibility inspector actually has a uh, separate application 
Mm. Um, that is called the con- the color contrast calculator. Ah, okay. Um, but there you still have to like manually enter the two colors that you're comparing. Okay. Yeah. And That's automating that, especially in the terms of of an app that has you know multiple colors, yeah. probably multiple texts and multiple sizes. Yeah. Uh, this, this makes that a lot easier to do. Yeah. Right. That's very nice. And it has a lot of other additional cool functions. Cool. So this is also something that I would love to to try out. Hmm. Um, and it also looks like a very, like, rather mature product, right? Like a rather mature project that has a great uh, readme and a lot of information that uh, explains how it works. Hmm. Um, so I would also imagine that this is Quite a cool project to to contribute to, mm-hmm. although it's all written in Objective C, <laughs> so it might not be for everyone. <laughs> but maybe you want to learn some Objective C um, out of curiosity and to see what it's like, because you might always run into bits and bucket into bits of Objective C, and maybe it's it's nice to to have like one one try with it if you never had it if you never sure. had to use it. There's also a button at the top that says request feature, which is also cool. Um, because maybe you're not because you're not doing Objective C, maybe you're not able to develop the feature, but you would still like to have it. You can request it there. I wonder what happens when I press the button. Oh yeah, it also it goes to the pull request, no to the issues, and you can um, you can add an issue. Yeah, I think it makes like it makes it a little easier, right? Like mm-hmm. sure, most of uh, most of the repositories on GitHub github of uh, support issues um but if you're really like forward saying hey we're looking for feature requests we're openly uh encouraging you to do to do that i think that really helps yeah and that that's already also something where you can contribute i would say is um github offers issue templates and that is not something that uh, this repository offers so that can make that bar barrier even uh, yeah even lower so we have one more topic, one more project. Right, let's go into it. And of course, last goes best. So that's Benedict. Um, we have a view inspector that is a framework for uh, runtime inspection and unit testing of Swift UI views. Right, so it's another Swift UI project. Uh, I guess this is where lots of the interesting stuff currently happens because it's a new technology and so on. What's interesting about SwiftUI is that um, when Apple released it, they had not really talked about a unit testing story. And of course, you can you can test it. You can just as before uh, run the in your test, um, run the host app, um, display stuff in your in your view, and make sure this stuff exists as we did with UIKit. No difference. So why would we need a difference, right? It it, it works. But with SwiftUI, what's interesting is every view in SwiftUI is a struct. And so if you change the state of the view, that is, if you change the values in the view, which changes what the view looks like, then the struct also changes. And in order to test that, you don't need to run a host app because the the look of the view, the view hierarchy is only dependent on the values of the struct. So basically, if you if you can con- confirm that a struct is looking in a certain way, um, you don't have to run the host app. The, in theory, there could be a way to basically take your SwiftUI view and render it as a as text, for example, or something else, and just make sure it um, fulfills certain criteria. And then you don't have to re- run the host app, which will make unit testing much faster because you can they, they run in a very high speed if you don't have to run the host app all the time for all the tests. And so this, there's this guy that went in and he said, well, why don't we write something like a view inspector where we can inspect 
in unit tests the state of a SwiftUI view, and it's incredible. Um, what it does is it allows you, for example, to um, to tap a button. So you have your SwiftUI view, you have text, and you have a button, and uh, when you tap the button, the state changes, and a additional label is displayed. It's a very it's a very simple SwiftUI example. And you can do that. In your unit test, you basically, without running the whole step, you basically take the view, you um, you tap the button, you, you tell it to tap the button, and then you check if um, there's now an additional view that wasn't visible beforehand. And a lot of other things are possible. And it, he does all that by in, uh, in, uh, by introspection, by using reflection to, to, make, to see what the struct looks like after the change. Um, and this allows you to write very, very cool, fast, um, unit tests for your Swift UI views as long as you don't have any UI kit in there, right? And I think that's like, on the one hand, I get why there's not that much focus on uh, testing there because I think what Apple did really well is, you know, Swift UI is only views, it's only UI. And mm -hmm. you're really discouraged to do any kind of like, uh, add any kind of models. Well, you, you have to, you have to to add your models, right? But you're not going to do any uh, custom logic that we would normally see in, in view controllers or in controllers. And at that point, you could argue like, hey, you know, ideally we want to start with testing our business logic. Mm -hmm. And if that works, then, you know, we have our UI and we run our UI on the app in the app so we can see if it's broken or not. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in many cases that is at least a great starting point, and you don't really want to start with unit tests for, for UI. Um, but given that it is all structs and that it is all just, well, you know, in the end, like you said, you can even convert it to, to text. Um, well, that's not possible here, but you could. That is something I, I would envision right. might happen at some point. Uh, and then you can just inspect that or, or do uh, a snapshot test mm. based based on the, on the text. Mm. And then without actually running a simulator that takes a screenshot. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not dependent on, upon pixel changes. Um, so personally, I think that this is a direction that Apple might go in the future with SwiftUI, where we will get a fantastic UI testing framework for SwiftUI that only supports SwiftUI. I, I think this is where, where Apple will go at some point. But until that happens, um, this is a great in-between point that allows us to... Um, do our testing, and you're right. We shouldn't have business logic, but a, a bit of business business logic we we have, or let's call it view logic. That is, you tap a button, you set the you have the add state, uh, and that means an additional row is displayed. Or you tap a button, and when you tap the button, you want a certain action to happen in your model, and you still kind of want to test that tapping the button also does the change in your model, stuff like that. You might want to test that be, and, and, and other things, or because user interaction is usually what you want to test. And um, this allows you to do that in a, in a much faster fashion and also much much more succinct than creating a UI navigation view, adding stuff to it, and so on. So it's it's nice. I, I really like the project. And um, I most of SwiftUI is supported. And in terms of... Um, in terms of helping out open source, I think it would be great if, if people help out here and, and add more documentation, add examples of how this can use, because this is really, really valuable for um, having properly test SwiftUI code. Yeah, not only just properly test it, but like making, again, making this barrier lower, making it mm. easier to go into testing with SwiftUI. Yeah. Uh, it's really great. Um, there was a, a talk by, um, I don't remember who, but there was a talk at FrenchKit on testing with TwitchUI as well. 
um, which is uh, also something I want, would love to link because uh, I think that's also a great resource to understand um, how we can think in a way of, okay, how do we test this and how do we want to make sure that testing is still a priority and it's not mm -hmm. forgotten because, mm -hmm. hey, you know, we have SwiftUI and it solves all our problems, mm -hmm. which it solves a bunch, but it doesn't solve everything. Yeah, and it, it's new ones. Of course. Yeah. All right. You, the listeners, will find the links to all these projects in our release notes. Uh, no, in the show notes. Show notes, right. Coffee didn't work I, yet. I guess you could call them release notes. Yeah, yeah. maybe let's call them release notes in the future, not show notes. Um, if you're interested in these projects, um, if you want to help out any of them, if you want to use any of them, um, well, thanks for listening. And looking forward to the next one. Yeah. Bye.